and welcome to the Camp Wire podcast. My name is Lauren McMillan, and I'll be your host today. And I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with Mikey Latner. He is the executive director and founder of Project Camp. And I am thrilled to tell you all about Project Camp and to learn more about it because I just think it's one of the most incredible organizations that I've ever learned about. Before we dive into this conversation, Project Camp was founded by Mikey Latner, a camp director with decades of experience in youth education, and Ozzie Barron, a strategy and operations expert who has helped organizations start, grow, and scale. Mikey and Ozzie are old friends who both had impactful, transformative experiences as campers and counselors at summer camp. In starting Project Camp, their goal is to provide the same mentorship, humor, and sense of belonging that they associate with camp for kids who need it most. The goal isn't simply to provide a safe space for kids whose lives have been disruptive, but to help them learn, grow, and thrive as a result. Mikey, welcome to the Camp Wire podcast. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's good to be yeah, here. Absolutely. So like I mentioned, I am so excited to learn more about Project Camp and for our listeners to learn about it if they are unfamiliar with Project Camp or I've never heard about it before, let's start at the beginning. At its core, what? how would you define Project Camp? What is it? Um, Project Camp really, and this is also part of our origin story, um, but at its core, we, we are trauma-informed summer camp, um, taking all of the benefits that we know kids get and staff get by going, attending camp, working at camp, um, and marshalling it in a totally new environment. And so really being able to um, fill in when childcare networks are disrupted, when schools are closed um, during during disasters. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, because as as we all know, I mean, there are camps, thousands of camps across the country, but the majority of them have designated locations and serve um, relatively specific communities or audiences. But the fact that you all meet people where they are in a time of need, I mean, I just think it's, it's genius and it's, it's so needed. I appreciate that. Yeah. The thing I like to talk about is, you know, I'm, I'm not a firefighter. Like I was a camp director for a decade. Um, so when my community is impacted by a disaster, you don't send me to the fire line or something like that. I don't ride around in a fire truck, but, you know, as a camp professional, and like you said, there are camps everywhere. There are See, there are seasonal staff members, full-time staff members in all of our communities. Um, being able to marshal that expertise um, in times of crisis isn't just, um, you know, cre creates a pathway for folks who work with youth to be involved in the response and recovery of our communities. But we're, we're actually the most qualified to do that work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so to put it in a nutshell, Project Camp, would you describe it as um, essentially pop-up camps? Yeah, so... Project Camp, we do two things really that are two sides of the same coin. Um, we pop up free trauma-informed day camps to support kids and their families, uh, and by extension, their communities when disasters hit, man-made um, natural disasters. The other half of what we do that complements that is community organizing and preparation. So it's linking together schools, Office of, Office of Emergency Services, um, Boys and Girls Clubs, camps, YMCAs, everyone who's working with youth to be able to build uh, and execute action plans around providing for children and families when disasters strike. So one really does complement the other. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I want to put a pin in that because uh, later in our conversation, I want to, I would love to get back into like the process that you all follow when, when disasters strike and how mm. you all put together a camp, but I want to take it back to the beginning and first learn about your own experiences at summer camp, both as a camper and a counselor. Take us back to the start. Absolutely. So uh, I grew up, my mom was a special education teacher for 35 years. So the idea of like just being um, 
being an educator in all different senses of that word has just been something that's been a part of me um, and still is. I grew up going to you know all sorts of day and overnight camps, sports related, arts related, um, just growing up and um, started working back east at a camp uh, when I graduated college uh, and slowly worked my way up the ranks of the professional teams back east and um, here in California. Um, and it you know, for me, it was always this confluence of being able to have a meaningful impact on others, the people you're working with, um, the kids that you're, um, that are in, that are, or the clients of camp that are in camp uh, that we're serving, um, and being able to see the um, personal growth, um, people be able to try new things in an environment that's safe and intentional. I think um, that's something you know, that doesn't exist in many um, environments. And so I feel very fortunate that I um, got to have lots of experience in being in those environments. And it made me think constantly about like, ask the question of why other environments aren't as focused and, and as intentional in that. Um, and that's actually how, what brought us to um, popping up our first camp after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston in 2017. Um, I went down as a part of a, a network of other camps and set up a day camp serving kids for about three weeks after uh, Houston was impacted by Harvey. And for me, it was like a, um, it was a lightning bulb moment. I was like, oh, why, why are we not using this tool that we know we, that works for our kids mm -hmm. um, in an environment where they actually need that kind of support and that return to um, a sense of safety and routine? You know, kids process in ways that are different from adults and they process through play. Uh, and so um, there is a lot of research behind how um, play and that like sense of belonging, belonging and connectedness um, can stave off the long-term impacts of toxic stress as relates to um, the international natural man-made disasters. So let's go back to uh, that moment in 2017 um, when you all did the first pop-up camp. What was that thought process like after Hurricane Harvey hit? What, what kind of made you all think, let's go down there and put a pop-up camp together? How, how did that start? Well, I think the part that's really important actually was a response to need. So we, I was working as part of a, a nationwide network of camps and with camp in Texas that had a lot of community in Houston and they asked the community what they needed. Um, and at the time, Harvey hit like right before Labor Day um, and schools were supposed to open up right after. Uh, and people responded with the need for childcare. You know, they're, they're trying to go back to work. They're mucking and getting homes. They're navigating um, insurance and FEMA stuff. Like they're just, parents have so many other things going on um, in addition to also being there for, um, for their kids and to be able to process themselves. And so it was really a response to community need to set up childcare. Um, and I actually think there's a, there's a really interesting overlap in the emergency management world, uh, and in camps. And I very much, I come from the camp world, but, um, there is that highly adaptive sort of constant chaos thing that like happens at every camp. You know, our schedules are, we're constantly building schedules at camp and adjusting them because they're changing, falling apart. Something doesn't work. Um, and that, is actually a, like a method of operation that works in this kind of environment. And so um, getting camps, you know, I was, um, my part of the team was really getting all of our logistics um, and equipment set up, doing all of our meal service, um, but being able to have access to, we were operating in a, uh, in a synagogue in, uh, near Rice University. Um, so having access to a commercial kitchen um, meant that I could just sit there and say like, okay, you know, camp, we do this, we serve hundreds of meals a day. What do I need right now in order to make that happen? Um, and it got to um, really think what was really powerful for me was it stripped away a lot of the complexity around 
that we bring to camp and it was like, what do, what do we actually have to get done right now? Uh, and so we, we worked with our food service provider for camp to be able to just get a refrigerated truck from San Antonio into Houston uh, and start serving meals. And at the time, Houston didn't have really any like good access to fresh milk. And so we were, since we were trucking in food for to be able to run camp, we were also trucking in like additional supplies to be able to send parents home with stuff. Um, and so to be able to use a camp tool as a resource like that and be able to see how uh, it can apply in the same way, but serve a different purpose um, really was a, uh, like I said, it was like a, it was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh, we're doing the same thing. We're just in a different environment. Right. Yeah. And you touched on something there that I think is so true of camp professionals is this ability to, for lack of a better word, improvise. Um, I feel like even in a, in a, like a traditional structured camp setting, you could have the best laid plans and they can go awry. And it's like, totally. how do you, how do you respond in that moment and having the, the wherewithal to, um, kind of be prepared and proactive as opposed to reactionary. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is kind of a perfect skill set and combination for what you all are doing. So from that moment in 2017, how then did you, I, mean, I know you said it was kind of like a light bulb moment for you. What was the process from there like mm-hmm. to kind of putting Project Camp together? And then when did you all start um, conducting more of these pop-up camps across the country? Um, well, so it was both fortunate and unfortunate. Actually, right after Har- uh, Harvey hit Houston, uh, the camp that I was working at at the time up in Santa Rosa, California, was burnt down in the Tubbs fire in 2017. Oh, wow. um, and we actually did the same thing. We popped up a camp in the Santa Rosa community um, and really just spinning off of um, that experience in Houston and rolling into this one in Santa Rosa. Um, that started to, to solidify, okay, this is a thing that like, we can do this multiple times. This is replicable. Um, there are nuggets here that we can expand upon and use in different environments. And actually, uh, was like someone else has already thought of this. So like, I just went around and was looking for an organization that was providing childcare and disasters because I was going to go work for them. Um, and I think that's a really important point because you know, instead of trying to enter a space and reinventing the wheel, uh, I think it's important that we like look at we look for others doing this work and try to collaborate. Um, and try to build at scale. Um, we weren't able to find anything. And so um, Ozzy and I set out in 2018 to do it on our own. Um, and we had, you know, we had some community connections. Um, and unfortunately, California 2017, 2018 um, was impacted by multiple wildfires. And so we were able to um, get back on the ground and still do this ad hoc, but um, start to understand, you know, what, what framing we needed to put together in order to make this all possible. And it really, for us, it really came down to people power. You know, our our equipment needs are sidewalk chalk and finger paint. Like the the those inputs um, are relatively small. What we really got to focus on was getting the right people to be um, in the right space that can put camp together, that can be those meaningful adult mentors for kids um, impacted by disasters, and to marshal all of that quickly. Uh, and it's what really started to highlight that where camp fit into all that and how the the personalities that come out of camp and the skill set of working with kids. And, and it's not just camp also. I think we've worked with a lot of educators, um, lots of folks with like babysitting after school program experience, like, but all have that like experience and passion for working with kids. Um, and so we really start to focus on how can we tap into those networks? How can we get, you know, how can we get in front of all of those um, networks inside of a community that's being impacted by a disaster? And, and can we get them to come to camp? 
um, and to show up in this way. And really like it never ceases to amaze me like how you can be in, here's a good example. So like we were in Quincy, California in Plumas County during the Dixie fire. It's one of the largest fires. Actually, it is currently the largest wildfire in Northern California, in California history. Um, and our volunteers were teachers from the public school, from the charter school, um, and uh, high school seniors from within the community. Wow. Um, and it blew my mind that like, you know, these are people that are actively being impacted by um, this wildfire. Um, but it highlighted that sense of agency that they got, you know, they, these were people who like, this is a common refrain, but like people are like, I want to be able to jump in and help. Um, and so this was a way to um, create a pathway for these folks to get involved and to utilize their skill set. So it wasn't, wasn't that we were just putting people to work, but it was that we were tapping into like real community knowledge. And so these teachers, the kids that we were working with, many of them had had these teachers before or were going to have them. They knew their families. And so there was a level of empathy that like you can only get by having community by having something that reflects the community and that for for me really and for project camp i think really highlighted it's about the concept of marshalling community resources um, as opposed to trying to be this big big flashy organization that like drops a bunch of um, things from outside in all at once that maybe isn't a reflection of or needed by the community I love that. I think it, it, it's so incredible to see how camp can happen anywhere and how it doesn't 100%. take some incredibly fancy structure or campus or time of year, but purely tapping into, like you were saying, the community and these people that that know the impacts of camp and the benefits of it and the desire based on their own experience to share that with, with other communities and kids who um, who need camp more than ever. I think that's so beautiful. Um, so natural disasters, that's something that you all work with. Mm -hmm. And of course we never want a lot of natural disasters to happen, but we are grateful that you all are available when they do. So with that in mind, and maybe it varies, how many, how many camps do you all operate in a given year on average? It really does fluctuate. Um, it's a good question. We have really um, from the beginning, we've been focusing on like, how can we provide quality of camp? How can we make our camps like larger? How can we provide more space? Because um, you know, trying to be in the business of, we don't want to be led by natural disasters. Like our, right. our duty is response. Um, but because it's something that's like totally unpredictable, where, when, how many, um, we've been really focusing on like, do we have the, how can we put together the right people that are available? So then when things do happen we are able to respond uh, and so it's been for us a really like a big focus on monitoring incidences so we're constantly just like paying attention to the news um tapping into our networks of emergency services at the state and federal level all over the all over the country um and just getting a sense of what's happening on the ground so that we, the relationships are in place that when a community is able to say like yes this is necessary or we're able to say like this looks like this could be helpful um for you what do you think um that we're able to do it um and so it is it's been this very interesting, um, and you know, climate change has increased the frequency and severity of disasters. So it's thrown an even um, like bigger curveball on all of this, but wildfire season in, uh, in the West is expanding. Hurricane season is expanding, um, down the Southeast, like all of this, uh, tornadoes are happening more frequently in places where they weren't happening before. Um, so it is an interesting mindset for us to kind of think about preparing ourselves and providing like capacity and readiness because things are happening at all times. 
beyond natural disasters, are there certain conditions or areas of crisis that you all respond to? Or is it just kind of limited to, or do you, do you stick with natural disasters primarily? Uh, we like we take a broad view of a couple of things, a broad view of what it means to be impacted by disaster and mm-hmm. what that disaster is. So that includes natural and man-made disasters. Um, and that also takes a wide view of who is impacted. So it's not simply folks who are evacuated from homes, but you know, we in during Hurricane Ian in Florida this um this fall, we were popping up a camp for emergency services personnel, utility workers um in Charlotte County, Florida, because those were the people that were getting the county back up and running, allowed the teachers to get back into their classrooms and clean things out and ultimately get school turned on, um, turned on quicker. And that's really the focal point for us is, you know, when is, when are schools closed? When is, when are normal childcare networks disrupted? Um, and is that going to be for a sustained period of time? Because that's when um, families and community need that support. That's when we're, you know, we're asking COVID-19 really highlighted this, but we're asking parents to like have kids home uh, or be with, or be with kids where they're not in their normal environment. They're not at school or at, at some other child care network. Um, and they're also supposed to be going to work or working from home, or they're also supposed to be navigating all these emergency services. Like we're simply asking parents to do too many things at the same time. Uh, and so that's that's our mentality around it. And that's where um, we provide support. But it's also in terms of monitoring disasters, how we think about like, are we helpful in this instance? And we're not, you know, not every natural disaster or man-made disaster requires that kind of um, child care, but it's been really good for us to be able to distill down, like, how is this helpful and where is this helpful um, so that we can be meaningful when we do show up. Right. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. That makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. So getting back into kind of the process of, of what you all follow to create a pop-up camp on mm-hmm. the website and folks can check this out. You all tend to follow a three-step process. And I'd love to talk a little bit about each of these and mm-hmm. to learn more. So the first one is bringing the right people together. I know you've touched on this already, but kind of what are some of the core values and tenets that you all follow um, when taking that first step and when looking for the right people to bring together for any particular uh, disaster response or any particular camp? To start off, you know, fundamentally, I really believe that like camp at its core is um, it's really just about people. Um, you can have 10 great staff members and 100 kids in a school gymnasium or in a park field uh, or in a parking garage. And um, you will have kids leaving, say they have that, like they will have the time of their lives. You can create that meaningful moment in any space. It's really just about those people. Um, so being able to, we, for our volunteers, we, um, we don't train folks to work with kids, but we tap into networks of folks who already know how to work with kids. A, from a child safety perspective, these are people who have like already shown that they can do the work, that they've been properly vetted. Um, it allows us to then double up on things like background checks and interviews and vetting process and get folks who already know how to work with kids plugged in quickly. Um, and then from there, it's really um, code switching a lot of things. So in working with, we will drop ship um, a few of our camp staff to manage the volunteers and the camp operation and the program. Um, and in a lot of cases, we're working with a couple of camp counselors and a couple of babysitters and a couple of t-shirt t- uh, teachers. Uh, and so it's really about going through, well, this is what camp is going to look like through the day. This is how maybe it makes more sense from someone who's worked mostly in a classroom versus someone who's worked in uh, a day camp at a rec center versus someone who's worked in the woods at an overnight camp. Um, but distilling all of that down to 
the essential component understanding that what we're here to do is provide meaningful support for our kids. So I will often say like, this is the schedule. And if it breaks and we decide to do something different, I'm totally down with that. Um, it's really about meeting our kids where they're at um, and being able to empower our volunteers who know who know how to read and work with kids um, to follow our kids' lead. So our, another good example from, from Florida with Hurricane Ian was actually a lot of our teenagers, um, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds um, who had spent already a week um, either in homes or in evacuation centers, hotels without power, um, they would come to camp in the early in the morning. Um, and we ran an extended day. We ran seven to seven. And the first thing we would do, they would do is actually plug their phones in and they would sit and they would like look at TikTok videos and like text their friends. And um, the first day we were like, oh, we, we want to start our day off. So maybe we should put the phones away. Um, and we actually pulled the plug on that and let them ah, pull the plug is a good pun. Um, <laughs> we left the plug in the wall, actually. And we said, let's give these kids another 45 minutes. Let's just get them, give them space in the morning to be able to do that because that's mm -hmm. they're teenagers and this is what they want to be doing right now. And it's not that we were, you know, we weren't letting the screen do the work, but like they need this, the time and the space to do, to text with friends and to look at TikTok and to like be, um, to return that sense of safety and normal normalcy. And that's what we were focusing on. And so it's the same with, um, with all of our activities and with, if the program's not working, that's most likely a reflection of our kids just being in a different headspace. So we should just do something different. Um, and it really, it forces you to pull your ego out of planning and programming because like, because that's hard to do. Um, but it really helps us highlight for all of those involved. Like this is the core component. If our kids are happy, healthy, and safe, and they're moving through their day and they're making meaningful relationships, meaningful relationships with each other, that's it. That's all that matters. I think that's such an incredibly valuable thing to be able to, and I think this ties in perfectly with the next point, which is creating a plan. Um, and of course, like we mentioned earlier, sometimes the best plans just, just, you got to throw them out the window, yeah. but I oh, think that being able to, being able to really see who is in the room and being willing to change and to um, to serve those that are there. And rather than just being like, oh, we have this wonderful camp plan, we're going to implement mm -hmm. it and you all are going to love it. It is going to be great. Um, but I just think it's, it's, it's gotta be priceless to be able to, um, like you said, meet these kids or these people where they are and to kind of assess and, and provide for them what they need in that moment. I, I think that that's just incredible. So but sometimes it does help to have a plan in place and you certainly have to have a plan to get there in the mm -hmm. first place. So the second part of the process, when you all create a plan, when something happens, or if you're able to kind of forecast, um, maybe what might be coming down the pipeline, what does that process entail when you know, like, Hey, we may need to go to this area and do a pop-up camp here. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Um, it's really, it's two parts. Um, well, the, the, the first is really assessing need, um, and understanding, okay, childcare networks are closed. Schools are going to be closed for, um, an extended period of time. We can, you know, we can get camp set up in as little as 48 hours. We're usually about 48 hours. Um, we've wow. done it faster. Also in you know, New Mexico in May, we were up in 12 hours. Um, wow. and it's really for us about connecting, um, to a site, um, having access to um, like a trusted voice to parents. So oftentimes like a school sending out information about camp as a resource 
um, and then being able to tap into, into volunteer networks. Um, once we're able to get camp up and running, the plan for the day is actually is actually is the same every day. We have a set template for the structure of the day, and that allows us to do two um, two meaningful things. One is provide routine and normalcy and a return to that to all of those things for kids. Like our kids are used to showing up and being broken into um, groups based on age on their age group. Um, so for us, it's a cabin, but for them at school, it's their classroom. Um, mm-hmm. Be able to rotate with um, with an adult volunteer, camp counselor, t- uh, to different activities throughout the day. They're used to doing those things in in all other youth program environments. Um, what the schedule allows us to do is be flexible with what we have um, and to plug and play as we as we need. So um, you know we've been able to we brought in the universe in Reno. We brought in the University of Nevada Reno's soccer team, a women's soccer team, and then their basketball team, their uh, softball team, and we we're able to run sports clinics. And it it just fits inside of the day, and so we can slot out stuff that we're we're going to do and slot that in. Um, and it provides a cool, unique experience for uh, our kids, and it allows you know allowed those college students to be part of um, supporting their community in need. We did the same thing. Um, We've done the same thing in a bunch of other locations. You know, in Quincy, we used we worked with the uh, Feather River College and several of their sports teams, um, soccer team, their volleyball team, um, and it brings these like fresh faces and all this energy into this space, and it really helps make camp um, like camp like, to have all that feeling. Um, it also provides an ability to like plug and play based on like what the site offers. So. Like I said, we've done this in a bunch of different locations. Um, the ones we did in Reno at a at the Discovery Museum, which is actually a children's museum. So um, you know, they could there were tons of exhibits that the kids could like jump on, play with, like interact with. They had science staff there that could like lead exper- experiments. And so whole portions of the camp program were like themed around science and could like include all of these things because we had access to them um, in uh, a couple of the times in Northern California, we we've been in school. So we've been able to like use the cafeteria for meals and to use the playground uh, and to be in different classrooms and like use art rooms or like school gardens. And it like really lets you be creative and unique with the whole program. And I think that's actually uh, where a lot of this like fun magic can happen um, is you're able to provide predictability and that sense sense of routine and also a sense of like wonder and curiosity with our kids that we're going to do something cool the next day and, and we get to play with um, surprise and being able to like surprise our kids with like something unique. Like we have, we've had ice cream trucks come, uh, like from within the community. Um, uh, we've also been able to like get them hyped for things. You know, we've had fashion shows and like other day we've had, we have like a very great, uh, debate program where we get the kids, uh, really interacting with, uh, like what, you know, high school, college, like debate teams are like, um, and get to like invest in the research and prep and be able to like do all this delivery and so build this like more robust universe and it's it's all meant to do exactly that it's like to provide that creativity and wonder yeah oh that's incredible I mean your your resource network must be just like the most extensive one out there I mean how I'm thinking like a how did you get to that point where you just have this vast network of people that you can reach out to at any time something happens like this but I'm thinking too about so when you are building or giving advice on on how to build an extensive network of resources, is it purely a matter of just picking up the phone and, and calling people? Or is there a certain way that you all or that you recommend going about um, tapping into 
local businesses, corporate offices, volunteer bases. Um, where does somebody begin with that? Um, I really think it's like, I like everything actually. It, it, there are so many starting points. It actually just takes starting. Um, so really it's just like picking up the phone and starting with like what your what you think your inputs might be and starting to be creative about where you can get some of those things from. And that's where, it's actually where like, you know, tapping into athletic departments at colleges and science museums and ice cream trucks have like all sort of come from because it's like we know what camp looks like um, and there are a bunch of things like within our communities. And so what? how can we find any of those things and plug them in? Um, there are a few different um, anchor mechanisms that we rely on. And so we work really closely with World Central Kitchen um, that helps us work with and provide meals at all of our camps. Uh, we work with an uh, organization called Airlink that actually gets our teams on the ground. I mean, really within like a six to eight hours notice, like they can get us on flights. Wow. Um, and so then being able to tap into local community networks um, is uh, is a hustle. So it can be sometimes like starting with the school district or the office of emergency uh, emergency services or with a museum that you're going to like, you know, our host site is, uh, is oftentimes like one of our first plug-in sources because you can ask the person you're working with, like, hey, who else in your community? Like, should we, we involve in camp and starting to like, share the vision of what camp can look like and then be able to ask questions of like where can we find a community circus or where can we find folks that like bring in reptile exhibits and all yeah. there there's so much of that like unique funky like goofy sometimes super weird uh, like stuff in all of our communities and that's like you then get all that inside information like all that inside baseball from the folks you start working with in the community and you just sort of peel layer by layer um and that's where like uh, having building an extensive network with summer camps, uh, with school districts, has with emergency services at the local level has been really meaningful. Um, and it is relationship based. And if we, there's no other way to do it um, than picking up the phone or like getting someone on, like shooting an email and actually getting someone on the phone, being able to talk to someone about what you're trying to do. Um, it's actually where a lot of that that preparation and organizing work really comes um, really comes into play as being able to during a disaster, it's almost impossible to get someone um, to start to talk to someone about a new idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and so being able to work really hard in what we call blue sky periods when there isn't a disaster to build those networks, to share that vision, um, to start to lay out those plans. That's actually the thing that enables um, those relationships to be, uh, to be of resource when the time comes, if and when the time comes. Yes. Wow. Okay. I mean, you make it sound so easy, but I know you all have it like down to a very scientific formula and you're experts at this, but that is so, I just think that's so cool and so encouraging, especially if, if, I mean, if people are listening and even hearing like the idea of bringing together all the funky and fun and, mm -hmm. and sometimes weird local groups or organizations. I mean, what a cool opportunity for people to come together in that way. And I just think like, of all the opportunities that would come from that, because then people mm -hmm. may have the opportunity to connect in a way that they might not otherwise ever meet and just the relationships that can form from that. And it's just such an awesome kind of positive snowball effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You tap on one that's really important. I think it's like, you know, we've in doing this organizing work early on, we realized that things that touch the same kids in the community. So like offices of education, boys and girls clubs, um, different kinds of camps. Um, they all will work with the same kids, but they don't normally interact with each other. Uh, and so bringing them together 
uh, at the same table with the Office of Emergency Services, with parks departments, um, all focused around childcare and disasters, we know has knock-on effects for those relationships. And it like allows um, those professionals to recognize that they're working with the same kids and to start to create plans that overlap. They're totally outside of like the disaster preparation and response, but are about creating meaningful experiences for our kids. Um, and I think that's like, that's been one of the coolest things to start to, to start to activate and to see, um, to see coming to fruition. Cause it means that our small slice of the pie here, which is working with a community when it's impacted by disaster or, or bringing them together in order to create a plan has knock on effects that are way outside of like what we are involved with, um, but that will benefit members of the community that will be um, enhanced by those like businesses and organizations and agencies in the community that will reflect the community itself that starts to um, really uh, like empower folks to be able to do something um, inside that space. And so if we can be part of helping to push that together and really get out of the way so that folks can be the lead on what um, what they see as needs in their community. That's, it's really cool. And I think it's like an important knock on for our work. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a gift to know that you all are creating a lasting impact that, that extends far beyond when that community has physically recovered from, from a disaster, but to know that you all are leaving a lasting impact. I mean, that's just, I love it. So Okay, the final piece of your three-step process, and I'm very curious to know about training volunteers because mm. my first thought is, all right, when we're thinking about summer camp or any camp, staff training tends to be like very extensive mm. and maybe staff are trained for weeks before camp starts or for schools when the teachers will go back uh, toward the end of the summer for a couple of weeks of, of training and, and professional development, you all are working. Like you said, sometimes camps are up and running within like 12 hours. Sometimes Right. <laughs> how are you training volunteers? How are you getting volunteers? Maybe it's the planning that you do beforehand, but please share this process because I'm sure people are, are very curious to know. Totally. And I also don't want to like, I, I, like I very much like as a product as someone who's run many extensive staff trainings, like what we're talking about in terms of like preparing our volunteers is really a uniquely different experience than what folks are doing in, in like an yes. a, um, regular summer experience. Yes. Um, and it's actually, it's, it highlights where Project Campus Organization like really, really fits in as an expert in the room. Um, you know, so for us, like this is the work that we've been building, preparing, um, working with lawyers, mental health professionals, youth professionals um, on how to create a platinum standard around child safety, around preparing our volunteers and providing for a meaningful program um, and to really make that trauma-informed care program happen. Um, and so we enter all of this understanding that like we as an organization need to incorporate platinum standards in everything that we do, particularly with child safety. Uh, and so reaching out to existing child care, care networks is like one of the first places that we start because it's a rate pool of potential volunteers who know how to work with kids who have already gone through county, state, back, federal background checks. Um, and it starts to be able to, like I said, allow us to code switch really quickly and to say like, this is what we're talking about. We mean, you're going to be in a cabin, two volunteers, 10 kids. And so tapping into those existing networks is essential. We don't train folks to work with kids for the first time, um, but if you already are a youth professional, that's where we're able to plug you in. Um, the next is, like I said, really sharing um, the nuts and bolts of how the program is going to work, um, but really imparting 
the reasoning behind why we're using camp in the first place. And it's because sometimes the program goes awry because the kids don't want to do it. And sometimes like the, you know, the volunteer you have leading the arts activity, just like isn't like as good and proficient at running that activity. And that's totally fine. Um, but I think instead of, uh, instead of trying to find the right art person to swap in, why not empower that person uh, and figure out where their skill set is and be able to plug them in in a way that um, highlights their, um, highlights their skill set, um, because that will come out in their confidence and their ability to do the job well, and it will come out in in the meaningful experience that the kids will have and the fun that the kids will have. Um, and then the other is all sorts of mechanisms and check-in and processes and protocols around um, being in larger groups, um, you know, being able to uh, ensure that all kids are in those groups at all times, be able to, um, we're constantly checking our numbers, checking names, like making sure kids are in the right spot. Um, we keep the number of spaces that we use close together uh, and few in number so that we can have not just multiple vol volunteers uh, with multiple cabins at the same time, but also to have allow our staff to be around. So um, it's really providing multiple layers of redundancy uh, in everything that we do. So we, we ensure that we are, um, you know, we have access to the emergency medications that, uh, you know, a particular camper needs or that we've accounted for special dietary um, needs or that we're able to take smaller groups to the bathroom and still have um, the rest of the cabin um, participating in activity to do all those things that camp actually does plug in really well. Um, it's where like the framing and the expertise uh, for us really comes into play uh, and building that around our volunteers and our kids so that they can just be at camp. The volunteers know they're like, I'm going to these programs with these kids and this is all that's happening around me. And so it's, I really like want to give like a very special shout out to like, our staff um, and our volunteers that make it happen because it is a ton of juggling and passing back and forth and overlap that all comes from, that has to come from a place of trust. Um, and that allows us to like verify that everything is actually happening the way we want it to be happening. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced, I'm thinking about how over the past couple of years, staffing shortages at summer camps has been kind of an ongoing issue or topic mm -hmm. of concern. Does that same issue apply when you all are looking for volunteers or, or has that not been the case for you? I think it really is different. Like, you know, it comes out in some ways and not in others um, because we're, because this is happening last minute. Um, mm -hmm. So we're really reaching out to a network and it, it is, um, it self-selects. It's folks who are interested in, in being involved um, and being able to leverage their own networks to, to bring the volunteer numbers we need to be able to, you know, the number, we limit the number of campers that we have at any one camp based on the number of volunteers that we have for um, reasons we just talked about, for being able to provide that, um, to follow the protocols and the safety and security and the child welfare that we have set up. Um, so I think we are in some ways impacted by, you know, limited numbers of teachers in, in a specific, you know, in a small town or um, working with a, a, a summer camp in an area, but most of their staff are actually from out of state or out of region, but it is a little bit different for us because because it's volunteers in the moment. Um, it does kind of like who will show up, and it actually it mm -hmm. makes the the volunteer recruitment and the training process and that the dynamic that we have with our volunteers and that staff um, really special. It becomes like it becomes very. Uh, it's like some of the warmest things I've ever seen is like who shows up and how they show up, um, and it's like. It, 
to borrow the phrase, like it's pretty hardcore. Like it is get, it gets people who are like, yeah, I want to see that I can do this. Um, or I want to be able to take what I've done in my normal job or my normal summer experience. It's like, this is how it can be marshaled in this way. Um, I think that's the value add that we share with youth professionals. Um, and so I think we get a little bit of this like different tinge from, from the staffing shortages that plague all, all youth programs, particular, particular camps. It's also where I will say like, I'm a fervent supporter of camp as a meaningful employment experience, especially when you're young, because it's, we are a very good example of it, but like, there is no other job that has you holding as much responsibility, um, being as flexible and adaptive as camp is and having meaningful impact as camp does. Uh, and so I think that's something that our volunteers and our staff see, not just in their, in their volunteering with us, but in their normal professions. And that's a, a space that I really want Project Camp as an entity to be able to highlight. And we're able to do this work because folks are in these jobs, in their communities, doing this day to day. Like we're only able to do this because of that. Mm -hmm. Very well said. You know, at ACA, we are all about people working at camp. We think it's just the best job training in the world. And I think Agreed. it's probably a really great opportunity if there are some either college age kids or or people who are interested in working at a camp, but are unsure or nervous about like committing to an entire summer. I think mm. what a great opportunity if they volunteer to work at a project camp camp. Um, I feel like giving them that maybe shorter, um, shorter experience can really show them the impact and the benefits and the, the skill development that they, um, that they can get from an entire summer working at a camp. Um, and speaking of, I would love to know, is there, I know you've mentioned that there's like a, a general template that you all follow for like a, a daily, a day in the life mm -hmm. at, a, at a project camp camp. Is that mm -hmm. what you call it? A project camp? I just say like a pop-up camp. A pop-up camp. There it is. Ran into the <laughs> like really, really redundant on. here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've mentioned that there's like a general template. What does, just generally speaking, what does a, a day in the life at a pop-up camp look like? And is there a particular number of days that you all tend to stick with, or does it vary by location and events and community? It's um, it's both. It's highly flexible and adaptable um, because we don't know the space, because we don't, you know, a lot of the disasters, like it will, it will the situation is changing. So we've moved campsites before we've um, extended camp longer. We've closed down camp earlier. Um, okay. and so we look at every day of camp as both the first and the last day. Um, mm, and so we okay. start every day, um, with parent check-in and small groups and really re like, we're really, um, we're really adamant about learning names. And so like for our staff, like it's important to like staff know every camper's name by the end of, for, uh, end of day one. And it doesn't mean that all of our kids return every day. Many of them do. Um, but it's because it's a meaning, it's meaningful that this person like that you're seeing that like someone recognizes that that's you as a child are here and that like, this is your name and being able to say goodbye to the specific camper and have them know that like we've enjoyed having them at camp that day and be able to have their parents also understand that starts to really like build that sense of like trust and community between us and members of the community. And so they'll go through the, you know, we start off the day really um, building that cabin community and that camp community. And we also end the, the day with that as well, being able to say like, 
to say goodbye in a way that both acknowledges that some people will return the next day and some people won't and that that's okay and that today was a meaningful moment regardless um, and being able to manage those expectations with all of our kids and so we're constantly sharing what the schedules and what the next activities are with our kids um, so that they feel that they know what's going on that there isn't um, surprise in the negative way we use surprise like bringing the ice cream truck like um, yeah. those kinds of fun surprises but so that kids have that sense, like ability to have that managed, managed expectation, know what's coming. Um, and then to be able to end the day the same way to say like, this has been a meaningful experience. And if you're able to come back tomorrow, great. And if you're not, that's okay. Like maybe we'll see the next day or, or maybe we won't. Um, but to give, I think what's really important in all of that is actually, uh, kids are when given the chance are really good at understanding all of those things. And one of the like early, uh, I think teacher isms that I was given was like, you know, if you treat an eight-year-old like a five-year-old, you get a five-year-old. If you treat an eight-year-old like an eight-year-old, you get an eight-year-old. Um, and so it's not that we're you know, pushing hard discussions with our kids, but we're able to acknowledge this is what's happening next. This is what we know and this is what we don't know. Um, to to um, take on questions, to be open and honest with all of those answers. Um, I think it builds a level of trust that allows us to um, change the program during the day and have kids understand like, oh, this is why we're doing this differently. Like, the gym is closed for the next hour. So we actually decided we're playing basketball outside. Um, and that's, it's a really cool space to be in with like kids to be like, that's like level of honesty. It makes you very much like a, I think it is a very much a peer relationship. Um, and it's often something we overlook as adults in how we relate to kids. We like, we think of them as kids and, and they are, and I don't like, don't mean to like, um, I really actually do mean to muddy the water between those two things um, because what we're creating at camp is an amalgamation of us showing up and our kids showing up um, and how it all works. And so it really is a, important to have honest back and forth. Um, and I think that allows our kids when we run camp for multiple weeks to build a real meaningful community that lasts after camp's gone. Um, and to be able to understand that when we do close camp early because schools are opening back up or we're moving to a new site because the fire has moved um, to under, to understand that and be able to like take that on and um, not feel lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sense of belonging is it's everything. If camps are or if camp owners and directors are hearing this conversation and are inspired to um, maybe create their own uh, strategies for for getting more involved in their own communities when when disaster strikes, when when things go awry or or if they're just purely looking to get more involved in, in helping out in their communities, what are some of the, what are your top tips for how they can get started? Um, the first honestly is, uh, is reach out to us, call, email. Um, it's something we want to do as a, net, as a network. Um, and as I said earlier on, I think it's important that, um, you know, we're able to stand on experience and, and build capacity and scale um, as a camping industry as an institution, like working with youth as Project Camp, um, so be able to plug all this stuff in together, learn from each other, share best practices. Um, the other is uh, really looking at like all of the components of your camp and your community as um, different assets. So it's it's everything from that commercial kitchen um, to bunk space to a ready network of staff across a city um, to you know day camps with bus lines um, to 
the you know the giant program closets to have stuff in there that like you not you haven't used in years but like actually is totally worth pulling out in this in this instance um that there is a ton of stuff that we just innately have um and an expertise that we have in doing this um that i want folks to feel confident in that this is something that you can get involved in so like uh, i balance you know networking with us and building up this larger network with folks really understanding that like you can do this um, and you have the tools and the resources to do it right now. Um, all it is is figuring out how to marshal those uh, in the right moment, do them well um, and be prepared and to respond. And then if people are interested in um, either becoming volunteers or if different organizations want to become part of your all's network, where can they go? How can they can get in touch with you? What is the next step? Yeah, definitely. Um, the best way is to visit our website, Project Camp, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-C-A-M-P dot C-O. Um, you can also email us um, at hi at projectcamp.co. And you can email me directly at mikey at projectcamp.co. Okay, awesome. And I'll, I'll put all those in the show notes so people have oh, those links immediately. Before we wrap up here, Mikey, I would, I would really like to hear from your own perspective. I mean, I can't imagine the, the broad, lasting, meaningful, positive impact that you and your staff and your volunteers have had on organization or communities and, and organizations um, over the last few years around the country. I would love to know for you what how how has this work impacted you? How has it impacted your perspective of the world? What is what is maybe one of the key takeaways that that keeps keeps you doing this every single day? And um, what has it meant to you? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean it's it's, it's been incredibly powerful, um, and it's in, it's really powerful for everyone who gets to step foot in it. Um, it's really personal. Um, you know, we share a lot of laughs and we also share like a lot of tears and you, mm -hmm. you experience, you don't see, you experience like what our kids and our families and communities that are impacted feel. Um, and I think that has a direct impact on us and that that's good. I think that's okay. Like, I think there's something about the building meaningful relationship with mem with campers, with their families, with community members that um, means that sometimes that's hard. Um, but it's because it comes from a place of like real empathy. Um, and so we've, you know, it's, we stay in contact with kids and with families and, um, we like, it's sometimes like hard to leave. It's hard to leave camp early. Um, if you're like one of the staff members rotating home, it's really hard to close camp down, um, and be both simultaneously happy that like kids are able to return home or that like their schools are opening back up. Um, but also know that like, you're not going to see them. Um, and key, a portion of that is like, it's not like normal camp. Like there is no guarantee you see them in some other time. So this camp, like this, this moment, this little like community you created, like it only existed this like one time in this one instance, this one way. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's been very meaningful to recognize that and understand how impactful it's been on everyone involved and also to be okay, like letting that go and that that's it doesn't, you know, it goes away. Um, and that kids and families like will take that or we'll take that into like our other experiences in life. Um, I think it's given me like a much clearer sense of not that I don't think I had this already, but like, I think it's been very clear, like how you can have meaningful impact on society as a whole by working with kids. Um, like if you really want, if you want to talk about like changing something for the long term. Practically speaking, you should start with kids because they have the like 
they're they're going to be they're going to grow up and they're going to have this the longest amount of time to have that impact. Um, I also think they're some of like the most open people to new ideas um, because they're not tainted by and they're not jaded. They're not tainted by their own experiences, positive and negative, but like they're genuinely open to like how this could be totally different. Um, and it's really like it is one question someone has asked once before was like how we um, deal with compassion fatigue, fatigue or like being in, involved with communities during these difficult times. And I think an important part for us is remembering that like what we're there to do is create um, a playful, a joyful, like a meaningful space. And that is that has benefits to both like to both sides of the equation, um, to the kids and the parents who are in the community and also to the staff that we're marshalling. Um, and so we leave filled. Um, and it's similar to like how people I think leave camp um, that like they've been fulfilled. That's why people talk about these like 10 months for two is that like it, it's had this like meaningful impact on you as well. Um, for us, we're doing it constantly. So um, we're constantly getting, having that refill and that's only really our benefit. Um, I think it's one of our like best kept secrets that I'm happy to share with everybody. Yes. <laughs> you heard it here first folks. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I can only imagine the, the, the impacts that it would have on, on your perspectives and, and how you, how you approach people, how you, how you have compassion. And it just, it just seems like such an incredible lesson that you get to experience and, and learn from over and over again. And yeah, I, I think I can speak for everybody in saying, thank you for doing this work. I, I know it. that I can, I can imagine that it's not always easy. I mean, you're going into these, these communities that have dealt with maybe the darkest times that they've ever experienced. Um, but it is so amazing. And I am so grateful that you and your staff and your volunteers are finding beauty and creating beauty and fun in an area where that might have disappeared for a bit. So thank you for doing that work and for continuing to do that work. I appreciate um, it. Thank you. Well, Mikey, is there anything that we did not discuss that you would like to mention? I don't think so. I think you've covered all Okay, of it. Yeah, we did great it. Great job. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, yeah. again, if people are interested in, in getting in touch with you all and and learning more, they can check out the links in the show notes. Um, hopefully they'll they'll sign up to volunteer and and get yeah, connected please. with you all to to continue to grow the network and the work that you all are doing. So well, Mikey, thank you so much for joining us on the Campfire Podcast today. It was such a joy talking with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of the Campwire podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to Campwire wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single upcoming episode. And for more information on Project Camp, check out the show notes for all the links that you might need to learn more. And as always, be sure to follow ACA Camps across all social media platforms at ACA Camps. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.